On March 2, 2016, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance hosted a book talk with Ash Center fellow Holly Rusan Gilman. Her book, Democracy Reinvented, Participatory Budgeting and Civic Innovation in America, suggests practical ways to empower citizens to become change agents and is the first comprehensive academic treatment of participatory budgeting in the United States. Holly Rusan Gilman was joined for a discussion on broader trends of civic technology and urban innovation by Quentin Maine, Assistant Professor of Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School, and Nigel Jacob, co-chair of the Boston Mayor's Office of New Urban Mechanics. The conversation was moderated by Ford Foundation Professor of Democracy and Citizenship and Harvard Kennedy School Academic Dean Arkan Fung. For more information about the Ash Center, visit ash.harvard.edu. Welcome. We're delighted uh, tonight to be able to host Holly Rusan Gilman. Many of you know Holly because she's been a member of the Ash Center community for many years. So let's all congratulate her on her new book, which she'll be talking about tonight. <laughs> democracy Reinvented. Holly was a Democracy Visiting Fellow at the Ash Center from 2011 to 2013, a non-resident fellow from 2013 to 15, uh, at which time she did a lot of the research and the writing for the book that she's going to talk about tonight. And she is currently a uh, Technology and Democracy Fellow at the Ash Center and has served in lots of capacities, including an uh, evaluator and site visitor for last year's Innovations in, Amer in American Government program, which focused on participation. We're very happy that the Ash Center also has co-published her book, Democracy Reinvented, with the Brookings Institute. And the Ash Center has been engaged with a large variety of participatory budgeting initiatives and is therefore a great venue uh, to talk about this subject. And people hear from the community. There, I, I'm guessing there are people from uh, the Boston PB effort, and maybe ho hopefully also from the Cambridge PB effort, but I don't, I don't know about that. Um, Holly is currently a postdoctoral research scholar at Columbia University at SIPA, the School of International and Public Affairs, where she's teaching a class on civic technology. She's also a postdoctoral civic innovation fellow at the New America Foundation in New York, and she holds a PhD and a master's from the Department of Government here at Harvard University. After leaving Harvard while she was a non-resident fellow, Holly served in the Obama administration as the Open Government and Innovation Advisor at the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy. She's worked as an advisor, researcher, and consultant to lots of nonprofits and foundations, including the World Bank, the Case Foundation, and the Center for Global Development. Holly's study here, the book, I didn't bring one because I only have my iPad, Democracy and Reinvented, <laughs> is, yeah, hold it up, <laughs> is the first book-length examination of participatory budgeting in the United States. She is the first person to have a close look at how this important democratic innovation moved, that began in Brazil, moved to, among many other places in the world, Chicago, New York, and Boston. She looked most closely at the New York effort, but also at some other efforts around the United States. And we look forward to her account of the important ways that the practice and its effects have shifted in that migration from south to north and uh, east and west, I suppose. Uh, so here's how this afternoon is going to go. Holly will kick off the discussion by introducing her book, telling us a little bit about it. And then we'll have two commentators. The first is Nigel, Nigel Jacob, who's uh, joined us from riding the, the red line out from uh, downtown Boston, where he is director of Boston's I-Team and the co-founder of 
the office of the mayor's office of New Urban Mechanics, which was uh, founded under Mayor, mayor Menino, but has continued under Mayor Walsh, which is a delightful thing. It is a civic innovation incubator and R&D lab within Boston City Hall. The idea was that you couldn't possibly have uh, civic and urban innovation within the main structure of government, so you need to create a little, uh, uh, a little skunk work that's liberated from that, and now it's transforming many other parts of Boston uh, City government, which is fantastic. Uh, Nigel is also the urban technologist in residence at Living Cities, a board member at lots of organizations, including Code for America and Co-Urbanize, and is an executive in residence at Boston University. He has an extensive background in collaborative and citizen-facing technology products, uh, especially in the public sector, and Jacob also served as uh, Mayor Menino's advisor on emerging technologies. Uh, he's been a frequent partner of the Ash Center, and we're delighted to welcome you back this afternoon. Quentin Main is an assistant professor of public policy here at the Kennedy School. His research and teaching focus on the intersection of comparative politics and urban politics and policy, particularly in how the design and reform of democratic political institutions affects how citizens regard their government and how they act politically. His dissertation was entitled The Satisfied Citizen, and it won the uh, American Political Science Association's uh, Ernest B. Haas Best Dissertation Award in European Politics, as well as the Best Dissertation Award in Urban Politics. He's currently working on a book project that expands the dissertation uh, dramatically by explaining why some societies are more content than others with the overall functioning of their political systems. I guess one, uh, the converse question is why some societies are uh, discontent with their political institutions compared <laughs> to others. So uh, with that, let's uh, welcome our guests. And Holly, take Great. it away. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for being here. Um, you know, I literally could not have written this book without the support of all of the people in this room and the Ash Center. Um, I was introduced to the topic of participatory budgeting at an event just like this many moons ago. So who knows where today's conversation will take everyone. Um, and, you know, big thanks to Archon and to Nigel and to Quentin. Uh, and I see so many wonderful experts and familiar faces in the audience. So I hope we can have a really rich conversation with all of the expertise that's here. So I'll talk a little bit about, you know, why I wrote the book, some of the findings, and sort of, sort of the larger framework of civic and social innovation that I see occurring around the country. So about five years ago, Joe Moore, who was then an alderman from Chicago who had just implemented the first participatory budgeting project in the United States, was speaking right here at the Ash Center. And he was talking about how he learned about this nifty innovation from Brazil at the World Social Forum. And he put a portion of his menu money, his discretionary funds, back into the hands of his constituents to decide how to spend it. And at this time, no one else had really done participatory budgeting. So that was $1 million in one Chicago ward. And now, just five years later, we're seeing the process all around the country with White House support. And the Ash Center put together a wonderful event at the White House last week to sort of think about scaling participatory budgeting. And we're, we're looking at upwards of $50 million being put into the process. And so part of the question is, you know, what is this process? Why are we seeing people engage in it? And who are the people who are participating? So, I'll start by answering those questions. <laughs> so essentially, the way the process is structured in the United States, 
residents come out and they identify community needs in their area, and then people sign up to serve as budget delegates. And they're the ones that work closely with government officials over several months to come up with viable budget proposals, which they're going to turn back to the community for the community to vote upon. And in the United States, we're seeing this process expand largely with discretionary funding. So New York City was the largest implementation of the process with four council members across two parties, so a bipartisan coalition. And now we're seeing over half of the New York City Council putting a portion of their funds into the participatory budget process. And what's really interesting, and you know, you know, Nigel will talk maybe a little bit about this too, as you see things move from pilot to become institutionalized. You know, in the New York process, it's now being centralized out of the speaker's office. So there's real central capacity and institutionalized support for this process to move forward. And I think that's very important because then these one-off pilot innovations become the institutionalized structure for how citizens know they can have a voice in decision making. And that's part of why participatory budgeting interests me from a research perspective, because it's more than a one-off. It's more than putting citizens in an advisory position. The decisions that people make in the process actually become implemented into policy. And we're seeing PB expanding to different pots of money we're seeing some communities looking at federal community development block grants and the opportunities for placing those grants that are distributed by HUD through the United States federal government to actually put a participatory budget to that, to that funding. We're also seeing it expand to different kinds of people. So in Boston, they started the first youth-only participatory budget. So that's youth ages 12 to 25 years old having a million dollars at their discretion. And you know, having been there countless nights, it's a truly transformative process for these young people. You know, I joke that they come in for the pizza, but they stay <laughs> because they're truly amazed that they actually have decision-making power. And you know, last week when we had this event in DC, we had a 17-year-old junior in high school talk about like his engagement with government and the ability for him to engage his community because when they talk to him face to face and they see that this is real money at the table, these are real decision-making powers, it's a totally transformed experience. And what the process writ large in the United States has tried to do is really focus on those communities that are traditionally marginalized from the political process. So interestingly, the vote has included non-citizens, so really widening the pool of who can vote in political processes. And there have been large outreach and engagement campaigns to folks in low-income communities to really engage people who otherwise feel like they're not efficacious in civic life. And what I've seen time and time again, you know, in Chicago, in the New York expansion that continues to be the largest site in the country, in Boston, is that the people who participate do talk about the transformative effect it has on them and the way they engage with their neighbors, the way they engage with their elected officials, and the way they feel about the political process. And so, you know, moving forward, there's a lot of really important questions about how does this affect people's long-term civic life and their civic engagement. If you participate in something like participatory budgeting, are you then more likely to stay involved in other aspects of your life? And it's a particularly salient question, which I talk about in the book, 
when you think of a few trends that we're seeing. And so one is the rise of digital technologies and the ability, or at least the potential, for these digital tools to engage citizens. And you know, Nigel's team has really been thinking about the transformative impact of data, of SMS, of civic crowdfunding, of opportunities where digital tools can reduce the barriers to entry. And there are many more questions about who precisely these tools are um, empowering and in what ways. And then the second trend is sort of the rise of millennials. And you know, all this data shows that this is a group, it's going to be the largest living group in our history of a country. And they want to be engaged, but they don't necessarily want to be engaged in the traditional political processes. They can be disillusioned with the partisan politics as they see it. You know, just look at last night's returns for uh, for any you know reasons that people may feel disillusioned, and people want to be engaged and they want to volunteer and be a part of their civic and communal lives. They're spearheading the uses of social media for civic ends. And then the question is, so what are going to be these opportunities to engage this generation? And so the book also has a framework to put some thinking around what I see as these nascent civic and social innovations. And this is everything from regulations.gov, you know, a portal to provide a comment and noticing for US decision making to really local level decision making, things like maker studios or tool libraries where people are coming together and trying to share resources in a new way. You know, one of the things that Boston has been doing is City Hall to Go, which is one of my favorite examples where the technology is a truck, it's a refurbished mail truck, and it's driving Bomb services. Bomb truck. And it's driving city services out to the people. You know, marriage licenses, death certificates, name changes. <laughs> but it's showing people that government can work for them, and it's meeting people where they're at. And so, you know, that's what the book is trying to really capture. What I see as this nascent trend and really focusing on participatory budgeting as one compelling example, but not the only example of these innovations that we're seeing to improve civic life. Nigel, over to you. Bomb truck. <laughs> um, I think one of the things we've, we've seen uh, in Boston. Oh, sorry. Yes. Um, so the, the the mayor's office of new urban mechanics is the city's innovation team. So our job is to invent the future of city services, and so that covers a lot of territory. Um, what has worked well for us was really to kind of use Mayor Mino's example in terms of where to focus our energies, namely to try to focus on how we can make the city better for people that live there or people that spend time in Boston, to really focus on the impact that we have on people's lives. And so that's been uh, an arc of our work from the very beginning. It's, it's really the starting point for our work. The, the evolution of our work over time uh, has been one of trying to listen to what the public is telling us, to listen to what the mayor is telling us, listen to what our colleagues are telling us, and to try to respond in a way that uh, where we can not overpromise, but also um, try to reset people's expectations in terms of the quality of the services um, that we deliver. Um, so City Hall to Go is actually a perfect example of, of doing that. Um, actually, the person um, that invented uh, City Hall to Go was right there, uh, Catherine Lusk, when she was with us as a, uh, a fellow a few, a few years back. Um, and the idea was, 
when we look at how we can, um, all the different channels we have at our disposal to deliver service, uh, there's a range of things that make sense for them to be online and maybe you should have an app to do those things. And there's a whole range of those kinds of things. But there's simply a, a whole other range of things that people just want to talk to a person about. And I think that the, the danger is that when we think about the digitization of government, that we forget that. We forget yeah. there's there's a whole yeah. very legitimate and I think empowering experiences when we connect the people of the enterprise of government with the people that are living in the city. And so that's always been an important um, uh, consideration for our work. In a lot of ways, our work has been trying to figure out what is that um, that mesh? Like, what is that, that perfect hybrid or meeting point in which the offline meets the online? Um, so I think that there's been lots of bad examples over the past several years about how to just throw technology at a problem and just hope for the best and you'll stand up a wiki and somehow the community <laughs> will become engaged and, and those things by and large fail. Um, I think in part because they're just not at all connected to the actual on the ground process. And yeah. so I think there is, there is when I think about like what is civic technology more broadly, I think it's not so much a, a sector, it's, it's not a, an industry necessarily. I think it is a, it is a philosophy about how you design and build technology to affect social or civic ends, right? So it's really a way of thinking and working. Because I think if you're building in this way, you come with a very different set of, it, you know, the, the things that you build at the end of the day look very different than you would have otherwise, right? That you would, you would, you know, if you're trying to, you know, simply use technology in the most obvious way, you try to put everything online, you kind of Googleize it and say, everyone can access it now. But of course, only very few people can actually access that. So instead, trying to figure out how, what is that blend of getting people into a room with some kind of, of a online uh, uh, enabler that can, that can uh, enhance or facilitate the civic interaction in a way. Because there, there are benefits to both. And so we have to figure out, and for, for, for our work, a lot of, uh, when you think about like, the research component of what we do, a lot of it is understanding like, like what are, what is that, um, uh, how do we go about setting up these, these interactions so that they can have this kind of more uh, effective blend of online and offline. The participatory uh, budgeting projects that we did, um, and I should say, uh, I am I'm not the expert on the, the our PB uh, project. I think there are many people in the audience that are more experienced than I am. The, the genius here is, is Sherry Davis, uh, from my perspective, um, who was at the event, right? Mm -hmm. But I'll say I was involved on the front end of that. And when we looked at, um, you know, over the past several years, or, or rather in the in the four years in which I worked for the well, I guess the six years I worked for the Menino administration, the challenge of how to align our funding, our, the city's budget with the yeah. needs of the community is, is a hard problem. And I think that the mayor always tell us that um, the, the surest articulation of our policy is our budget, because it articulates our values and what's important to us. And so when we looked at what we were doing, we realized there's, there's a huge gap here, right? Because we have a mayor that's, that's fanatically... Uh, 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 interested in trying to provide service, especially to young people, especially to people that are um, not connected in, in various ways. And our budget process doesn't connect with them at all. And so the idea was, what do we do about that? And so a few of us got together to try to figure out how can we take, not, not discretionary money in our case, but like hard city capital that goes into building roads and like hard infrastructure and allocate that to a group of people that traditionally have no voice at all. Um, namely uh, young people. And so that was sort of the, the point of origin. And so, you know, for us, civic, um, 
this focus on people and, and civic innovation and the needs of our residents has been uh, the driving force of what we do. And I think in a lot of ways, we're only scratching the surface in terms of where we could go next. And so, you know, we're, we're super excited that uh, Mayor Walsh likes what we do and is encouraging us to stick around and to grow and do more of this stuff. Great. Quinton. Um, it's an absolute delight to be here this afternoon and to offer some comments um, in response to Holly's new book. What I'd like to do is to try and place the topic of participatory budgeting and civic innovation in a, in a broader structural and historical context of the political life of, of cities in the US. And my goal here really is to work through the idea of whether cities and civic innovation, at, at least as they currently operate, can actually help us reinvent democracy. Um, so when thinking about today's talk and the role that cities are playing or could be playing in helping to reinvigorate democracy in the United States, I really couldn't escape being reminded again and again of the opening lines of Charles Dickens' uh, Tale of Two Cities. So if you'll forgive the change in tense, when pondering the role of cities and civic innovations, uh, what I'd like to propose is that really it is the best of times, but it's also the worst of times. <laughs> it's the age of wisdom but it's also the age of foolishness. It's an epoch of belief, but it's also an epoch of incredulity. It's the season of light, but it's also the season of darkness. It is the spring of hope, but it's also the winter of despair. These words really resonate deeply with me, especially after Super Tuesday, <laughs> when I think about the fate of American democracy and the roles that cities have played in getting us to where we are today, but also the role that cities could play and to some extent are playing in helping us chart a new course uh, for the future. A future where citizens and communities are more fully engaged with politics, where citizens and communities have more faith and trust in each other and in public officials, and ultimately where politics is producing policies and programs uh, that meet the demands and needs of most ordinary citizens. So why exactly are these the best of times and the worst of times? Uh, so the first answer to this question might seem pretty obvious, and it's something that a lot of us have been talking about for a number of years now. So really, there's a lot of newfound optimism at and in the local level compared to political stagnation at the national level. So when we look to Washington, we see profound political dysfunction with little hope of meaningful change in the short or medium term. But when we look to our cities, we see a new generation of public officials like Nigel, who are energetic and creative and inspire others inside and outside City Hall uh, with their can-do attitude. In the early post-war period, the leading examples of programmatic progress emanated from our nation's capital. But today, however, many of the leading examples of progress, be it in labor relations, climate change adaptation, the integration of immigrants or collaborative problem solving, all seem to come from the local level. Mm. Participatory budgeting and the other kinds of civic innovation that Holly looks at in her book are part and parcel of this democratic resurgence, which is occurring in our cities and is actually being fueled by city officials. But there's a second possible answer to the question of why these are both the best of times and the worst of times. And it lies in the very fact that cities are currently taking the lead in reinventing and reinvigorating democracy. That cities are the engines of this trend may be a double-edged sword. Urban spaces where progress is mainly occurring may also be the very places where we actually lack the political capital and structural endowments to meaningfully rework and reclaim democracy. 
So I guess a basic question that we could be asking ourselves a lot more than we currently seem to be doing is whether our hope in cities is actually in some sense misplaced. Um, are we asking too much of our cities, of the people mm -hmm. who live in them, of the community organizations that operate them, operate in them, and the public officials that serve them? If cities are truly to take on this mantle of democratic reinvention, are we collectively up to the task of amassing the necessary political capital to make this possible? Okay, so why might our newfound optimism for civic innovation at the city level be potentially, potentially, and perhaps only temporarily, uh, misplaced. Um, civic innovations are being inserted into the political life of cities at a certain moment in their history. These innovations emerge as a direct response to this history, but they are also constrained by it in important ways. For many of us, these realities produced by these historical legacies have become so natural as to almost disappear from sight. So what exactly are these realities? And for the sake of time, I'm just going to go through them in a telegraphic fashion. So the first uh, reality is a profound depoliticization of policymaking at the local level. City is a level at which problems just get solved and where partisan differences oftentimes are described as an obstacle in the way of solving those problems. Politics is the problem, not the solution. City politics have also become immensely disorganized and personalistic as a result of the weakening of party structures combined with what in many places is effective single party dominance. So in a sense, many cities are afflicted by disorganized contestation. Ordinary citizens and communities are also deeply demobilized. And we see this in terms of the incredibly low turnout rates in our cities. And then finally, Politics have become siloed and parochial as a result of jurisdictional fragmentation. Politics rarely occur, occurs at the level of metropolitan, at the metropolitan region, and there are really very few governance mechanisms for fiscal redistribution across municipal boundaries. So I sort of put these on the table in order to help us think through what we can achieve through civic innovations at the city level and the sort of walls that we are likely to run into if civic innovation as, for example, history budgeting or other types of civic innovation are to have the outcomes that we hope they're going to have um, at, at the local level. But the last thing that I want you to think is that it's not worth the effort, that civic innovation <laughs> at the local level is uh, not important, uh, but that it, it's a process that has to be linked to in a much uh, more robust fashion than I think we have to date with these political realities. Thanks. Thank you very much. That was wonderful. So um, I'm, I said this, Holly was at this event last week where I, I said it's, it is uh, a peculiar time to be talking about civic innovation and uh, the hope for democracy <laughs> when on the national stage it feels quite different. And I was talking to a, a MPP grad from many years ago, Joe Goldman, who runs the Democracy Fund, and we were having breakfast and we were saying, you know, you and I, we've been talking about how Americans are disillusioned with their institutions and there's low trust for, you know, a decade and a half or more. And I kind of feel like a climate scientist who's been predicting global climate change forever. And then 
Katrina and Sandy happen, you go, oh my God, this is how it feels. And <laughs> I thought that was a, a very uh, astute observation because holy cow, this is how it feels. Um, so, but back to the, the innovation point, and I think we have kind of nice bracketing of Holly's book on the kind of practical and very, very much kind of brass tacks on the street level and then an historical and uh, conceptual and comparative perspective. But, you know, Nigel, when you were talking about the youth participatory budget, I never thought to ask Sherry or you this. Um, it is remarkable. In the early days of that and when people were kicking around the idea in the mayor's office and elsewhere, there must have been a lot of skeptics who, you know, what, we're going to give a million dollars to these kids to do... What were some of those conversations like? What was the skept was the character? What did the skepticism feel like? And then what what turned it the other way to make this, you know, incredibly improbable public policy occur? So it, it was lots of skepticism, absolutely <laughs> lots of skepticism. I think um, there was there was actually kind of two sets of reactions, right? So on the one hand, people were skeptical that um, that anything would good good would come out of this, and this was mostly just a stunt. The flip side of that was that people said, well, you know, whatever we can do for the kids is good for the kids, right? So, but it was it, without any sort of real consideration as to would it actually be good for, for, for these young people. But what we, um, when we started thinking about it seriously, and this is when having someone with, with Sherry's background um, involved, we began to realize that we could come up with a process in which people are learning about about what's possible, right? So this is one of the, the standard pieces of feedback that uh, if you ask a city official about why they don't do more um, civic engagement, it is often because when you consult the public, if you ask somebody, um, what do you want to see in your community or what kind of improvements uh, that you would like to see in your community, you largely get, make it better, you know? <laughs> it would, it's, it's hard to get um, actionable results out of that. Yeah. And I think it has as much to do with the, the, the question that we ask. The question is bad. Right? We, that's not the way to ask that question. I think you can absolutely engage the public in a, in a meaningful discourse about how to do this, but you don't do it by simply saying, tell me, tell me what's bad or what, what's, what's broken, um, or you don't only do that. But what we came up with Sherry was that there was, she had a lot of experience in taking a group of kids that, that didn't know much about a particular topic and then exposing them to, you know, to, 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 to experts, to people that have been through this, or to kind of different... Um, uh, who've had other experiences similar, and then to school them up so that they would be able to have a, uh, uh, um, a, an intelligent discussion about it and would be able to ask each other hard but fair questions and so on. So it, it was really this process of realizing that part of the problem that we, that we get such little value out of the public process is, is how we are framing the public process. Yeah. yeah. Very good. Um, I also liked your initial framing quite a lot uh, that you attributed to Mayor Menino of saying, okay, well, you know, there's these people living in the city and there's people working in government. And what we've got to be about is building that bridge and aligning the work on one side with the desires and needs on the other side. And there's lots of ways that that can happen, um, but it's really hard. And some of them are online, some of them are offline. And, you know, all of you have been working in different ways in that space. And that's a good, for me, a pretty good definition of civic and political innovation is figuring out how to make that connection, mm -hmm. right? And we, I think, often think, well, it ought to be pretty easy to make that connection, but it turns out to be incredibly difficult. Yeah. 
huge, uh, requires huge amounts of creativity and experimentation and programmatic work to actually make that connection in real, real different ways, right? And participatory budgeting is one way of making that bridge that I think loads more toward the citizen side, right? It says it requires people like you and Sherry kind of saying, okay, well, well, first of all, putting the money on the table, but second, kind of engaging in an education process and a vetting process, but it's mostly loaded on the citizen side to develop the projects and to vote on them, et cetera. Um, what do you think is, and this is for, I mean, all of you are familiar with very different kinds of civic innovations. What do you think is lost or gained in that kind of civic innovation, which really loads towards citizen participation? It says, you've got the money, you propose the projects, yeah. we'll build them, right? Versus uh, forms of the bridge that are more loaded toward the governmental side, which, um, you know, uh, Joe Curtitone and Steve Goldsmith and others, right. and, and even uh, Office of New Urban Mechanics, you've engaged in lots of stuff where you try to sense what citizens' needs are. And they don't even have to say it, right? They can right. run over a pothole with your phone and you know right. where the pothole is and you go fix it, right? Yeah. To my mind, that's a version that's much more loaded toward the governmental side, where yeah. the citizens' expression of needs and engagement is yeah. low intensity and passive. Yeah. So what, what's to be said for yeah. high intensity citizen engagement versus high intensity public official governmental worker engagement. Yeah. Well, Anybody? Yeah, yeah, and no, maybe I'm all three happy, of you. I'm happy to jump in first. I mean, certainly in the context of um, if you, especially in a, in a situation where you've got a very strong mayor, right, structurally where the mayor has a lot of direct authority over things, most mayors, again, I'm channeling mayors here, uh, but most mayors often feel that the reason their, their function is to take a strong hand, right? That's why they're elected yeah. to, to lead. And so in that case, um, uh, a big part of their function is to, is to kind of make those big decisions as far as where the, you know, the, the road will, will be paved and what the big capital construction is going to be and so on. So in some ways, I remember um, talking to uh, Mayor Bloomberg about this once, and he hated social media. <laughs> um, he was a very technically savvy guy, but he, but he hated social media because it, it, it's, it's, in a sense, it sort of sapped power from yeah. his ability to directly lead, um, <laughs> which is a really interesting perspective. Um, yes, it is. But I think um, the flip side to that is, you know, there, there's, I think good mayors are humble mayors, and I think that th these kinds of mayors have a realization that as, as much as they know about the city and as much as they know it, and they try to connect with people um, even as a mayor that, that connected uh, with people as famously as Mayor Menino did, there's still a lot that you don't know. That yeah. um, uh, Even having met a third of the people who live in Boston, right. exactly. two-thirds you haven't met yet. Exactly. <laughs> so there needs to be some way in which the the will of, of the public and the community can be expressed, and I think not in an abstract way, to say we like this or we don't like this, but to literally kind of build it in some way. And I think we have never really done that before, um, not much anyway in, in, in in Boston. And so what I find interesting about this is that we're trying to figure out what works, right? So this is a big part of one of the, the lessons that I've learned over the past several years is that we need, these are, the, the question as to like, what is that blend of authority versus kind of like top down versus bottom up is, is a, 
a question that needs to be figured out over time, right? There is no right answer. You know, what is the role of government? I think there is no right answer to that. It really depends on the community. It, it depends on, on how people think about their local government. And so um, I'm kind of not going to answer your question. <laughs> yeah, so um, I, I think I come at it from two angles. The first is um, how organized is society? Mm -hmm. And so when you reach yeah. out to society to involve them in an empowered decision-making process, uh, what tools exist inside that space to allow them to acquire the skills or degree of organization yeah. or structuring to communicate and work through differences. Um, and then the other is, well, to whom is uh, the local government accountable? Mm -hmm. And what is the coalition that they're embedded in? So if the worst case scenario is that um, local governments are embedded in rather narrow coalitions that represent a subset of the local population's needs. Uh, the downside of uh, a top-down process is that it serves those needs rather than the uh, general needs. But then the downside of a, a, a participatory process is that it reaches out to society and assumes there is this thing called society out there or that there is communities who are organized, who have worked through preferences. And participatory budgeting has within itself the ability to, to, do, to, that. to do that, yeah, yeah. but it's a extraordinarily resource intensive yeah. uh, vehicle to achieve that outcome. Another outcome would be to think about, well, what is City Hall doing in general over long periods of time to increase the connectedness and organization of civil society in its city? And that means the reaching out process becomes more efficient and easier, but it also means that there's more likely to be a broader coalition that holds those in power to account that's mm -hmm. broader to, broader than the uh, narrow, usually developmentally oriented coalition that city governments are embedded in. So it's not clear that there's, that the answer is on the top down or bottom up. It's a function of how embedded is government in society as a whole, or how organized is society when th the local state reaches out to it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would I would agree with all of this, and I thought Quentin's framing was really helpful in thinking about the set of innovations. You know, and I think the point of the resource intensity is a very serious one. You know, putting on a process like participatory budgeting well actually takes a tremendous amount of resources, both on the government side and on the citizen side. So it's a unique uh, innovation in that it's, in a way, it requires, you know, in order to have the legitimacy to make the engagement worthwhile, it actually requires that top-down support. But it only really works well if there's bottom-up advocacy. And the role of the civil society organizations in PB throughout the United States has been huge. You know, in the New York process, Community Voices Heard is a membership-based organization of low-income minority women, and they have a membership that's activated already. So then they're ready to go, right? They have the infrastructure in place to organize. And in Boston, you know, there's a long history of engaging youth. You know, the first mayor's youth council was here. There's dedicated staff like Sherry. There's whole office, right? Very unique infrastructure to really engage youth. And one of the organizers they hired the first year, I thought was maybe the most compelling person I've ever met in my whole <laughs> life. You know, so it really takes a lot of resources. And, you know, some of the moments where you see sort of the light bulbs going off are those moments where you're one-on-one -on -one with a government official understanding, you know, how the sausage gets made. And you see that it's 
often, you know, more costly, takes longer than you thought it would. But those are the moments where you can't get a civic education like that in every setting. It's really a hands-on civic education, but that takes time, right? These people are donating their time. These, you know, and it's to this point of like, we're asking all of these cities to do a lot more with a lot less. And then on top of that, we're saying, you know, after work, maybe you could just spend a few hours like talking through some participatory budgeting stuff, like no big deal, right? So it's a it's a much broader question of how are we going to to show that this stuff matters enough that we have to devote resources to it and that it is costly to do well. The process is expensive. Last question before I open it up. Um, this is the Bernie Sanders question about participatory <laughs> budgeting. So Gianpaolo Biacci, a uh, scholar of participatory budgeting, makes this claim that participatory budgeting in Brazil, especially in the where it was invented in the Porto Alegre case, was largely about redistribution, right? Is that it was about, look, these poor neighborhoods are not getting any infrastructure investment, those sidewalk, they don't have any paved streets, whatever. And so we're going to invent this participatory budgeting process and we like the democratic features of the pro process, but what we really like is the redistributive features of the process. And lo and behold, after a few years of this thing cranking along, poor neighborhoods get a lot more public infrastructure investment, right? Yeah. There's more paving, there's more community centers, there's more electrification, right? So it serves this redistributive, or it, it advances this redistributive goal and has that effect. And then Giampaolo argues, well, as it's moved, as it participatory budgeting has moved out of Brazil to North America and Europe and lots of other places, what gets lost in that translation and diffusion is the redistributive and social justice aspect, right? And so he argues it's no longer about poor people. It's no longer about the Bernie Sanders question, right? And so I guess the, the question before I open it up is, do you agree with that? And then if you do agree, what's good about participatory budgeting that is different from the thing that the PT thought was good about it in Brazil, which is the social justice effect? <laughs> They're all like, you first. Um, it's, it's a really important question, right? And it's a meaty question. And I think it goes to Quentin's point of the local level as a place where we're not seeing, you know, highly partisan politics. And I think that is one of the things that's enabled local level innovations to take off is that they're viewed as politically neutral, where it really is about problem solving. And I think to the, the converse of the you know, massive deficits and austerity, the depoliticalization also creates an opportunity, which is to really leverage expertise in non-traditional ways, which is capitalizing on the power of universities, the power of tech companies and industry, the power of civic technologists who want to do good. And those are the kinds of organizations that maybe in a more politicized setting would not want to be involved. And so you're seeing the role of philanthropy. In, and of course, that's a whole other discussion that is worth having. You know, how do you then structure these things in a way to enhance the public good? But, you know, in a lot of these pilots, uh, the role of philanthropy played a critical role because when government wasn't ready to put in the dollars to fund it, they could take risks through foundations, and then once they showed, hey, this works, you know, people are not saying crazy things, like this is actually empowering people, government could then say, actually, this is worth our time and our energy and our resources. So the ability to experiment, I think, is actually correlated to the depoliticized nature of these innovations in the US.
So I'll say that I think there, when I look at the, the examples of the kind of thing in the U.S., am I, is that good? Um, I think there is a strong strain there of trying to empower the public. I, I think it, there is sort of a, you know, I can't imagine that too many American mayors would, would describe the process of being redistribution oriented. I think it would be much more, uh, the language would likely be around sort of the skills of uh, democracy. Like I think democracy and being civically active are- This is what's good are, about it. Right, yeah. exactly. And I think there are some skills there that we, we forget to teach people increasingly because they're often cut from education uh, when you're in, in, in grade school and so on. And so I, when I think about the way that we went about it and some of the other projects, I think it is it is about sort of exercising the muscle about how to engage in a civic dialogue in a, in a reasonable way, even when people are, are impassioned, but that there has to be a way for us to have this dialogue that doesn't descend into acrimony every single time. And so I think that that's, when I think of the, the, the value proposition here, it, it right. is about the reskilling of American democracy. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Quinton. Where this issue of redistribution um, is more uh, salient is at the metropolitan level, but that's exactly at the level where we see almost zero governance yeah. and by extension, no participatory budgeting. Mm -hmm. So if that's the level at which um, a more robust conversation can be had about the haves and the have-nots and how um, the arrangement of government is serving some and not others, uh, then um, that's the level at which the use of participatory innovations and civic innovations might be more likely than to hook on to a narrative of redistribution or an organizing around a uh, redistributive frame, but that it would still be afflicted by the same problem that many cities in the U.S. are afflicted by, which is um, over time a denuding of intermediary political organizations that help structure and organize attitudes about redistribution. So one way to think about that is depoliticization or partisanship getting a bad name. But the, I think that's possibly more level once you move it up to the metropolitan level where you have, yeah, yeah. Very good. All right, questions. Jenny. Jenny Mansfield, chair teacher at the Kennedy School. As you know, I'm a big fan of of participatory budgeting, but I I want I have three criticisms, um, one of which uh, can't be dealt with, and the other two um, might might be dealt with. And I want to kind of ask how if you have any ideas of how to get from here to there. Mm -hmm. So the thing that can't be dealt with is that the in participatory budgeting, whether it's Brazil or in the United States, people are given some money, and then they have to distribute it they don't tax themselves mm -hmm. to produce that money. And I think that citizenship is as much about taxing yourself and giving as it is sort of taking and mm -hmm. distributing. So, um, so, but I, I, that's not built in, I'm not, I'm, that's only, I just put that out there. Yeah. Now to get to the two things where, where I want to ask about, which is sort of what and who. On the what, uh, so far, much of this participatory budgeting has been pretty petty. Um, it's been pretty marginal. It's been sort of little projects. Um, and you mentioned uh, getting to the real infrastructure, getting to the real capital budget. Is, do you see any way of, of moving from kind of little projects 
to something more central to uh, getting. So that's that's the what. The second is the who, uh, which is at the moment I think quite frequently, unless the partic participatory budget is is aimed at something like youth or something, it will be the middle class people or the existing activists who get involved. So what one would want ideally would be for the more marginal people to be brought into the process. Now, there are a couple ways of doing that. One way is the incentive that participatory budgets give to civil society organizations. They give them a re reason to, um, there's money. <laughs> that then, And they can say, come join our organization, and then you can uh, be part of getting this money. Um, and that strengthens the organization. And it also, and the organization then brings in people from that otherwise might not be part of the process. But do you see any way, uh, what's your vision of how you get from the already organized, and particularly the middle class, mm -hmm. with their nice little project, so to speak, mm -hmm. to, um, to, to something that's, that's deeper in the what and deeper in the who? Was there? Bigger in the what. Let's just kick it off. Um, thank you so much, Jenny. These are very important questions. And, you know, obviously all of this is, uh, you know, following your scholarship and using it as a great model. So thank you. Um, so in the first one, actually, the book talks about some of the civic crowdfunding experiments that are happening um, that have been even smaller oh, in scale. Yeah, yeah but they are an example where citizens themselves are actually pledging the dollars. So one of the, the ones that I've studied is happened in Central Falls, Rhode Island, so not too far from here. And it's not a lot of money. It was $10,000 that citizens themselves pledged. They did it with a, a platform called, called Citizen Investor, who you guys have worked with as well. And what's interesting about it is they had just declared bankruptcy, and they were the first city in Rhode Island's history to declare bankruptcy. And they're a heavily Latino population, one of the highest Latino populations in the state. And they brought the community together, and they said, you know, we, we want to try something innovative. What should we do? And the community said, you know, because of bankruptcy, we have very flimsy garbage cans. And our park, which is sort of the heart of this tiny little town, this tiny city, is very dirty. And so the community came together and they pledged, you know, small amounts, $5 here. And they raised the money and they worked with a local art group to design the trash bins. And then they came out one Saturday and they built these trash bins in the community. And so the people are involved from every different aspect of the process. And I think something like a civic crowdfunding where people themselves are actually spending their own dollars is a very interesting model that's worth further study. I am further studying it right now as we speak. And you know, states are starting to put laws on the books, like Oregon, to really think about where can you use civic crowdfunding. And parks right now remain the most popular area for these kinds of processes in no small part because they're they're easy to see the tangible output versus other kinds of infrastructure. But you know, the, even with the civic crowdfunding example, it raises the important points of the what and the who because of this question of equity. We, we can't just have the wealthier neighborhoods who have more disposable income civic crowdfunding for the things they want. That's a major public good problem. And so you know, the question of who's participating and, and to what end is very critical. You know, in the and the new the U.S. process is becoming you know 
diaspora in its way. There are, it's, you know, Vallejo, California, and Long Beach, California, and San Francisco, and Detroit, and Seattle's following in Boston's footsteps with a, a youth-driven process. Chicago scaled up their process this year. St. Louis is doing it. Greensboro, North Carolina. Buffalo, where they're actually, they had to have all the city council members come together and make a vote because they couldn't use discretionary funds. And so it's hard to make generalizations now as the process continues to move. But in the New York City process specifically, they engaged around 51,000 people last cycle. And they really were able to bring out a lot of traditionally marginalized groups who were participating at higher rates than they were in local elections within their demographics. And that's because they've put in sizable dollars just to target these popula populations that are traditionally marginalized. And part of you know what that means is having thinking really intentionally of how you do the neighborhood assemblies. Where do you place these neighborhood assemblies? Where do you place a vote? You know, one of the districts did a lot of mobile voting, which is not on your mobile phone. It's a kiosk that actually goes to you, which we see in Brazil and other areas doing participatory budgeting. So that's actually going out to communities that otherwise may not go out and vote. And then to, you know, the, the final point of, you know, the toilets and trees problem that, you know, Archon has written about and we've, we've talked a lot about it, it is the most common question that I get asked as I'm on my exciting book tour, <laughs> right? And so it is this interesting sort of how do you, how do you then justify in a way what this process is, even though many of us in this room understand the importance of flexing your civic muscles. And so, you know, I'd say a couple of things to that. One is... You know, in mass, a lot of these projects are actually making a sizable difference in discrete areas, right? So we have to think about, do we want to sort of go wide or do we want to sort of go deep, right? There's a lot of disparate discretionary funds in this country that don't get talked about a lot. There's not a ton of transparency around them. But if you were to put all of them together, you're talking of, you know, multiple hundreds of millions of dollars. But it would be a million dollars here, a million dollars there for all these communities, right? Is that sort of the way we should think about it and really doing deep engagement within these communities? Perhaps. I'm not, you know, sort of giving a normative answer. But then there's also the sort of large stakes, you know, federal kinds of, you know, big budgets. And I think it's very challenging to think about how you maintain the sort of rewards we've talked about and the importance of combining offline and online approaches and how you then maintain the integrity of the participation while scaling up the amount of dollars, quad dollars, as the sum. So that's not an answer, but it is an identification of the problem. <laughs> Quinton. So if you think about that m most large cities in the U.S. have an electoral turnout of between 15 and 30 percent, um, that's a overwhelming majority of people who are barely politically incorporated into the policymaking processes. So even this idea that the middle class are somehow politically incorporated into the decisions that are made to shape the physical space and the services that are being delivered to them is, um, I think, also problematic. So then the, I think it comes back to this question of um, how are people anchored and embedded in wider social networks? And it may be a civil society organization, but it may be that they're embedded in broader networks that then are embedded in civil society organizations. And so the, the PB model is so resource intensive and just through that lens of connectivity that um, 
one way of thinking about that, the response to the second is, well, what are cities doing over the long term to invest in the social connectivity of citizens um, in a real joined up holistic systemic sense? Um, there's funding to nonprofits, but there's not necessarily um, as much coordination or using funding and incentive structures to coordinate that um, organization. Um, so that's sort of on the who, but from a structural long-term perspective of how you build out the who, and even when the who sort of seems like it's the usual suspects, they're not in the traditional sense because they're much, uh, uh, they're embedded in a deeper sense in cross-cutting communities. The what, um, so right now it seems as if a lot of uh, participatory innovations are spatially framed and spatially anchored. Rarely are they sectorally anchored the youth is demographically anchored. Um, they're, they're also not necessarily institutionally anchored. But you can think of scenarios where uh, participatory processes over budgeting uh, then gets reframed in terms of sectors that it may be more less politically risky for incumbents to open up a participatory process to organize interests or users or affected interests of particular sectors as opposed to the general population or at the level of institutions, uh, schools, uh, clinics, or even um, service delivery nonprofits that as part of the funding there is a, and you see that in, I think there's public housing movements mm -hmm. to have participatory budgeting. Um, that could be a way of building up the what, but in a way that seems less, less politically risky from the point of view of, yeah, yeah. Or we could, the question of scale, I think, is interesting. Um, I think, I think that you know, public officials get a bum rap a lot of the times, right? So, this issue about like where the innovation comes comes from, um, you know, our our day job for a long time was was about fiscal responsibility, right? It's about not overspending, be very conservative about how dollars get spent, and that is still very much the the frame um, around uh, cities uh, nowadays. All the, the discussion about innovation happens in a very different setting, right? We're talking about trucks and technology and different things. So there's, there's, right now we have not quite, I think, figured out a way to talk about how to bring the sense of experimentation and innovation that we see in these other topics to the, to the question of budgeting. So right now, there, if you ask a, a, a city finance director or a CFO of a city, there, there are really no mental tools, I would say, for them to think about the role of innovation in their in their day-to-day -day process. Um, there, are some, uh, there are some bright points, though, I would say. The city of Nashville, um, under um, their, their new mayor, it started under Mayor Dean, but under uh, Mary, uh, mayor Barry now, have instituted essentially a design process for some of their senior leadership around um, how their budgeting process will work and how to synchronize the budget more with the needs of the people. And I think it's, it's super creative. I've, I've never really heard of anything like this before. But at, at the very least, what it's doing, I think it's bringing the, the tools and the approaches of the innovation world, the world of change and so on, to the more staid world of, of budgeting and, you know, sort of uh, adding new concepts and new language to the, to the, to the table. Yeah. I'm having a sense of deja vu all over. Mm -hmm. uh, 
My name is Marcy Murningham, and my doctoral advisors, uh, Paul Ovasacher and, and Bob Wood, were responsible 50 years ago for developing community participation at the Ford Foundation with the Gray Areas Program, and then Bob Wood created Model Cities. My father was the mayor of the capital of Michigan at that time in a uh, progressive Republican tradition, but it was a nonpartisan office. So the idea of participation and par partisanship I think is not a, a, a new one. Uh, and in those days, cities were laboratories of innovation a lot. Uh, Bob Wood used to refer to the finance types as being the green eye shade types that had no imagination. So, you know, that was, that was well <laughs> known to, to them. And, and what they tried to do is, as Litauer grads, uh, they were part of that uh, optimistic group uh, that saw metropolitan forms of governance as being the, f the pathway to the future. It was Bob who wrote the book Suburbia and, you know, the recognition that you couldn't go it alone in the urban areas. So hat tip to all of them. Uh, many of us stand on their shoulders. I have uh, uh, two questions that both start with a P. Uh, in addition to the part, I can't, I'm sorry, <laughs> I think this way. Uh, in terms of the participation and in terms of partisanship, I think in our current uh, time, we also are living in a polycentric world. And I want to ask you about the role of pedagogy. I know that there is uh, what the what the digital uh, what digital reality has done is really break down barriers uh, between and among levels of government and sectors. My work is all around ethical investing and the role of private capital markets in the public interest, and that's you know a huge part of you know corporate social responsibility and socially responsible investors. You haven't mentioned that at all, and yet. There are many ways in which, beyond philanthropy, uh, the money power, not necessarily tax power, could be applied to public interest challenges. We're in a polycentric world. The pedagogy piece speaks to, I think you started talking about it, in organizing, you know, you have to ha talk about the educational role and the process sort of uh, consultation work, the group dynamic stuff, the helping to cultivate this sense of uh, before people are being asked to, to weigh in on what they think, how do you help them think uh, and learn that there's a profound learning dimension to all of this that I think is getting lost in the in the discussion. Yeah. Well, I think Holly, you can talk a lot about the pedagogical. I mean, there's a huge amount of effort and in Boston to kind of bring people up to up to I mean that's pretty judgment but kind of uh, equipping them to to participate right, effectively and so how does that work yeah and we just have some folks who came in from the Boston participatory budget so who've done it who've yeah. done it yeah yay <laughs> um, and you know feel free to jump in I think it's an important question of how you train people I, you know, I think uh, in sort of a lot of the democratic innovations that I've studied, you know, writ large, the importance of unbiased information is very critical. You know, whether you look at something like a you know large scale deliberation or you know a citizens initiative review, there's this idea that there's a lot of ways that people get highly politicized partisan facts, and so can you create structured processes to empower people to learn things in a, in a very different way. And so 
when you're talking about you know how something gets done, as you've talked about, there's there's regulations and there's ways you can get things done given those regulations. It's a little, it's sort of cut and dry in a way that if you explain it to people, they can understand it. And you know, and I've seen this with a lot of you know public officials and government bureaucrats who really want to do engagement, but they're scared of opening the floodgates. They're scared both of having the capacity to handle the influx and also the fear of disillusionment. But you know what I've seen a lot is when you explain to people the challenges and you're upfront and you're sort of it's sort of this question of pedagogy. You're honest with them in the way you're teaching it. People respond very well to that. They want to understand it and be treated like an equal partner. And I think we err on the side of sort of dumbing down information for young people or for your everyday citizen. But there is a way that you can explain things that is accessible to people. I think there's also a realm of, um, I think that we, when we talk about uh, political discourse often and just um, trying to understand the issues, it's very left brain, you know, it's very sort of logic driven and, you know, all things being equal, people will make the smartest choice, which of course never really seems to happen. <laughs> I think that there is a whole other side to, to the way people work and to the way communities work, which are driven by empathy and compassion and, uh, you know, just, just respect and honor and all these different things. And I think in many ways, those are things we need to teach as well, or at least to reinforce, because they're often there. But because if we don't admit them into the, the same context in which we're talking about problem solving, it'll get totally lost. And so I, I totally agree. I think the, the role of pedagogy is, is really central in a lot of ways. It's, it's central in sort of enabling us to redesign the, the, the community, uh, the, the public process that happens so often. Um, and I think that, you know, a, fr a friend of mine, uh, Eric Gordon, has done some really interesting work. He's, his, his work has actually informed me greatly. I was right. So um, in terms of Endgame works exactly. And his, his way of thinking, um, so he runs an organization called uh, the Engagement Lab at Emerson. And his way of thinking was that if you, if you frequently in, in, a, in a public uh, 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 discourse, the people that yell the loudest will know the least about the topic. And so the intuition was, what if you could create a game-like environment in which people could learn about the topic beforehand? But again, because it's a game, you're learning in a very different way. It's not just about reasoned, logical arguments for or against. It's, it's about fun. And it's about, like, why can't politics be fun, you know, in, in a positive way? Or why can't government be fun? And so, or, or this public discourse. And so the, the thought is that if you can introduce this very more compelling set of emotions and interpersonal styles of interaction, you can have a very different kind of public dialogue. And so I think that is really inspiring to me. And so I think that there's, there's frankly, a whole, there's, there's, when you consider that kind of work, I think that we've really only scratch the surface in a lot of ways in, in terms of the things that we could be doing using the tools. Yeah, I think the pedagogy issue is really interesting in kind of over time. I just feel like in the last, I don't know, just to put an arbitrary, you know, five years or something, it's just gotten so much more rich. I mean, you used to think of public participation as casting a ballot or going to a public meeting with, you know, very flat, you know, no, no pedagogy there. And to the extent that there is, it's all bad, right? It turns you off to the whole experience. <laughs> and now there's just so much creative, you know, people thinking about game dynamics, people are thinking about uh, neutral learning in different ways that's not propaganda. You know, how do you do like uh, issue books where there's these three positions and how do you really kind of not get too biased and make a deliberative judgment about it? visual learning design, all this behavioral stuff, and that's, you know, not even getting to the institutional design. And then even in the social movements, like since the WTO and Occupy and all that, you know, 
lots of kind of ground up invention of different ways just to even have a meeting. And so it's just this incredibly rich time where we're kind of going from zero to a hundred. And I don't quite know what to make of all of that discussion. It's just like enormously gratifying, not gratifying, that's the wrong word, enormously inspiring that all of these people are trying to approach the problem in very different ways. And in ways that, you know, just a few years ago, people considered a non-problem and a non-issue, democratically speaking. Oh, can I do the polycentricity, yeah. the first P? <laughs> <laughs> so um, depending on the day, I'm enamored by polycentricity, or I'll just call it political disorganization. <laughs> so um, especially when you think that the vast majority of citizens are not one of the nodes in polycentric decision-making processes. It's basically another way of saying that um, there's mutual dependencies between a lot of elites. Um, so if we, if we can change, if poly, polycentricity or a polycentric local political ecosystem would seem advantageous if the vast majority of citizens who are currently not necessarily politically incorporated are in that process, so the flatness works to their benefit, but that doesn't seem to be the case. What seems to be the case now is that um, there's uh, mutual uh, dependencies, but in the absence of uh, strong structuring devices. And partisanship, you can replace that with some other uh, structuring device, but where um, there are value-based or principle-based debate, debates as opposed to what resources you have at your disposal to um, direct the, the the course of the polycentric governing process. So that's both a for polycentricity when it is polycentricity, but against polycentricity when actually it's just another way of thinking about political disorganization. <laughs> Carmen. I want to get at a few of these questions through something Quinton said in his first remarks, <clears throat> namely climate adaptation. And let's stay with Boston, okay? So first of all, this is a incredibly huge and challenging task that will be with us for decades. We already know that major institutions, strategic planners, planning, are devoting the kind of technical resources. We also know in Boston, such as the uh, Back Bay project where multi-stakeholder you know uh, deliberations have gone on between with BU at the table and all kinds of property owners and many others what are we going to do and they came up with we're going to have locks and canals etc cetera, etc cetera. Um, so at the at the top strategic level we know we have to do things at the middle level people are starting to do things and that's some of the environmental organizations in that too at the lower level, I don't know what we're doing, um, but my suspicion is that uh, project by project, neighborhood by neighborhood is not going to cut very far because the place disruption that is entailed with adaptation to climate change over decades is going to be huge. Um, <clears throat> And we talk about the resource issue, and I think both it's both depressing but hopeful, because even though our politics are so screwed up that we can't really put this on the table, 
it is in absolutely inevitable that there will be billions of dollars for coastal adjustment in Boston and many other cities along just the East Coast. So when we think about how do we finance public engagement that's really creative and that can work up and down those levels, we need to figure out formulas that basically say, you must finance this. We can't, we're not talking about $10,000 to distribute one little project. We're talking about lots of money so that, first of all, neighborhoods, people don't kill each other over the spatial displacement and sacrifices in environmental justice issues, loss of property values, insurance. You know, there's so many issues, and you, I'm, I think that's why you put them on the table. So I guess my question sort of is, and anybody can get at it, is somebody who's in a strategic position in a city, and I know it's metropolitan, et cetera, what do we do to think through 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now in terms of really enriching our democracy because we won't have much of a democracy if we don't respond to this problem in a really good way. <laughs> anyway. Climate change is opportunity and challenge? It is a tough one. I mean, so I have a very soft answer for you, um, or a soft thought for you. So, so I've been working in, in a local government for about 10 years now. Uh, I, when I count the years, it's, it's fully surprising to me how long I <laughs> And I would say that over the last, you know, um, uh, certainly over the last five years, I would say that the the willingness across jurisdictional boundaries to work together is in a completely different place where it was just a few years ago, right? So I think part of that may be generational. I think you're seeing the people that are doing the work of government are beginning to change, and there's a different style about how mm. they want to interrelate and how they want to uh, work together. Um, so as a result, what we often find is that the, the ways, the, the, the willingness to collaborate and to share and to come to each other's cities and to, 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 to connect on issues and to do back-channel conversations on different topics is at a place now where I think it just did, it wasn't just a few years ago. Um, and so I think that in order for any of these sort of longer-term uh, sort of multi-jurisdictional problems to be undertaken. There's certainly a, st a structural question, right, like in terms of finance and so on, but even that will be predicated, needs to be predicated on the ability of people to work with each other across these divides. Um, and I think that's beginning to happen. And I think, and it's not by accident, I think it is in part that we, we are trying to, to I mean, you know, I can speak more specifically in terms of my city. In, in Boston, we are specifically trying to hire people that have the capacity to to collaborate and work together, um, you know, as as a core set, as a score, as a core mm. skill set, not just as a nice to have. And so I think I got to think that over the next four or five years, that's that trend is just going to increase. And so you'll see a very different group of people that are willing to to work across these boundaries in new ways between sort of city, local, and and uh, and federal, um, sort of uh, city, state, and, and federal. Um, and just, you know, we have conversations with the White House, you know, every every other week at this point and talking about a whole range of different topics. And so it seems to me that the culture of, of being able to take on big problems seems to, seems to be changing. Time for one more question. You've had your hand up for a while. <coughs> I, <coughs> excuse me. I'm Mark Tushnet. I, I teach at the law school here. Uh, and I want to frame, the, I want to ask a question that's been uh, touched on indirectly in several of the observations I want to 
see if there's anything that could be said more directly about it. And I want to frame it in two things. One, I haven't read the book, so it might be in the book already. <laughs> uh, and the second is I think about this problem that I'm going to describe in connection with processes of participatory constitution making, mm -hmm. uh, where similar kinds of phenomena are occurring. And in those contexts, there are interesting questions about the interaction of the ordinary citizens, the participants, with what I think of as technical experts, uh, or uh, in the, <laughs> yeah, right, <laughs> or the people you know, on the other <laughs> side of the bridge in the metaphor earlier. Um, and there, as I think of it, there is, you get not, they are de-partisanized, but they're not depoliticized because there's a politics of yeah. technical expertise that's at work. And I just sort of want to know, I, we don't really know much about how that works in the constitution-making context, uh, uh, but I'd sort of like to know, you folks know something about it in your context. So you're worried about kind of domination kinds of uh, issues? Well, framing issues, actually. Framing issues. More like, uh, so in the, I was thinking in the garbage can example, mm -hmm. You know, the people say we have $10,000 to redo the trash cans. Uh, and then somebody on the other side says, well, you could have 10 cans with this design or 20 cans with that design. Um, and that's sort of it. Uh, you know, we have the tech, there are technical limitations on the possibilities here. Um, and I you know maybe that's right, maybe it isn't, but there's some exercise of, um, in this context, technical expertise that shapes the participation. Yeah, that's a great question. I, mean, I certainly agree. I mean, I think that is that is rife when you look at um, the public process that happens now. The, the the technocrats, the experts, they do tend to set the 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 boundaries and the parameters of the discussion exactly they, they give you these are your three choices um, the way that we've been trying again in, in my example the way that we've been trying to get around that is by trying to open up the process so uh, <clears throat> in addition to uh, participatory budgeting we've also been trying to do using your example um, for example uh, kind of referring to your example uh, open design contests for the public so that we're actually someone someone from Microsoft was supposed to be here. Is Amy here or? Kathy's hey, here. Kathy. <laughs> there they are. And so, oh, you're both here. Hey, there they are. And so uh, <laughs> with our friends at Microsoft uh, in Boston, we're, we're, uh, we're running a program called the Public Space Invitational, where we're actively encouraging everyday people to essentially okay. take, take over public space and to tell us what the designs should be. And there's part of the logic here is, I mean, we certainly want to, you know, we, we, you know part of the, the rubric, the language is that we want to make public space more fun. But at the same time, there's also a theory of change here, which is that if we can show our colleagues, the, the experts inside local government, what is in fact possible, that it'll, it'll change their perspective on the challenge altogether. Um, one of the projects that came out of uh, our public space invitation last year was actually um, very engineering -y, and the idea was, you know, those, there are these big gray um, electrical boxes. You've probably seen them a million times. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're quite big at street level. And the assumption is that, you know, people have asked us, can we just get away, get rid of these things? Because they're eyesores, people bump into them, all these different things. 
But the engineers always say, no, you need to have it for accessibility, to kind of change things and so on. And so one of the, the, the creative responses that we got uh, last year for our public space computational was to actually insert, basically, to put hinges into the system and put a wood slats on the, on the one side. So you flip it over and it becomes a bench. <laughs> right? it's, it's not, in some ways, it's not rocket science, but it, it, is, it, is, it is certainly disrupting the way our public works department thinks about what is possible with, with um, a public infrastructure. And so I think there are, there are really some, there are some like, you know, <laughs> lightweight ways that we can do this in terms of like, stretching the imagination. Like, my experience has been that if you take a reasonable public uh, sector employee and show them what is new and what is possible, They'll, they'll respond to that. I think that they're, you know, they, they're just kind of working with the tools they have at their disposal. And if you show them very different things are possible, um, you know, years ago when we first launched our, our um, app, Citizens Connect it was called. It's, it's an app that allows you to report these requests for service. You see um, graffiti or potholes or whatever. Before, as we were talking about the idea, um, so these apps, I should say, are pretty common nowadays. And so there's all kinds of different companies that do them. But back in 2008, when we first launched ours, there was, like, no one thought it was possible. For, like, not the private sector, the public sector, everyone thought it just wouldn't work, that things wouldn't get fixed, it would make people angry, and so on. And people's <laughs> sense of what is the art of the, what is literally possible just was very narrow. And so by simply showing them that we can make this work and we can deliver a high level of service, it changed what we accept as possible within government. And so I think that that process can be repeated in, in many different ways. So I'm hopeful that we'll be able to kind of circumvent this issue, like the, the tyranny of... Um, technical power. So, you know, one of the very first, the very, actually the very first article that I know of on participatory budgeting in Brazil is by this guy, Boa Ventura Santos, Boa de Souza Ventura Santos. And he, his claim is that one of the things that happened in Porto Alegre is that a bunch of the city engineers and people in the, in the agencies adopted a different mindset. And he's very clever. He called it the shift from techno-bureaucracy to techno-democracy with the idea that, I mean, it seems, it's, it's got to be an overstatement, but the claim is that, you know, these city engineers and stuff now saw it as part of their professional ethos to serve the democratic will rather than to serve the line agency and its bureaucratic function, which is a, an interesting way to think about a professional role and how, how it might change in if you have a more participatory context, right? Um, this is a great discussion. I think that it's, it's what I love about these Ash Center events. It kind of is about, is very solution focused and is about the creative stuff that's going on. And we bring together uh, both the practice side and the scholarship side to have a conversation that wouldn't otherwise be possible. And, you know, the substance today was about kind of a happy, optimistic thing. And, you know, to use the bridge metaphor, a way to think about both what's happening at the local level here, but also at the national level, is that the old bridge of party representation that connects people's desires, people out there to the government, isn't working all that much, all that well anymore. And what we're seeing is lots and lots of efforts and lots of different ways to rebuild that bridge, right, on both the left and the right at the local level as well as on the national stage. And we just haven't figured it out yet. And hopefully people will, it'll click in and better and better bridges will be built that people on all sides are much, much more happy about. But we're all both watching and deeply engaged in that process. So it's a very exciting time to be interested in democracy. Thank you very much, everyone.